Hey, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. We're back. Uh, it feels, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but it feels like it's a very long time since we last got together, at least in this capacity. It wasn't even two months, but it feels like a really, really long time. And it, it's, it's, I've been missing this a lot already. The, the fun part, at least for me, is gearing up for the next batch. That's always a, a very exciting endeavor, but it's nothing like getting together and talking about it. Uh, once again, we want to thank the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, who are the co-sponsors of this, uh, this series and of many things that I do in the KJ community. I thank all of you. Many, so many people have joined the Institute within the KJ community. I'm delighted and grateful to all of you for doing that. And of course, we want to thank KJ. It's been eight months to the date that I've become an East that I've become an East Sider with my family. We moved over Everything. here. Yeah. Huh? Everything. Huh? Everything. Well, it, it's, uh, that being said, I'm still an East Sider, and, and we've just been loving making this into our home and being part of the community, really getting to know so many people in so many different circles within the very broad KJ community. And so we're back to the Book of Kings. We're up to Sefer Malachim. We're, for those of you who have missed... I'm sure nobody has missed anything, but in case you've missed anything, the first eight sessions are all online. So you can actually hear them and, and get yourself up to speed if you want to. But each lecture always stands alone. I make sure that that happens with all adult education endeavors because people are busy and I, I am aware of the comings and goings and I want to make sure that each thing, stands, you know, each thing stands on its own. So today it's all about King Solomon, but before we get to him, we all have source sheets by now, right? I'll flip to the back so we can get a bird's eye view of the Book of Kings. The Book of Kings has three sections, at least the way that I made it up on this outline and that's what counts for for this evening. The first 11 chapters, which is tonight's topic, is King Solomon. He is the son of and successor of King David, and that he's the star of the show for tonight. What happens right after King Solomon reigns... Good evening and welcome. Oh, it's good to see you. Look at this. We have, we have, we have, we have. Okay. Well, we have. Anyway, we have. All right. After King Solomon, the monarchy breaks, the monarchy splits in half. What happens is King Rehavam, the son of Solomon, is uh, not as wise as his father. And plus there are other things going on, which we'll start talking about tonight and then move to tomorrow night, uh, meaning next week. And the monarchy divides. We have a split monarchy, a rift, between what becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes secede and join King Yeravam of the north. And then two tribes remain with the Davidic dynasty. The tribe of Judah, of course, which is the native home tribe. And also the tribe of Benjamin remains loyal to Judah. And that's it. And that is one of the three great traumas of the entire biblical period. Many bad things happen. But the three traumas are the splitting of the monarchy, the exile of the ten tribes that become the ten lost tribes, and then finally the destruction of the first temple, which is the pinnacle and climax of all the catastrophes. So the middle section of the Book of Kings ping-pongs. The narrative actually ping-pongs between the two kingdoms. It'll say, in the X year of so-and-so of the south, so-and-so became king of the north, and he reigned for this long, and he was bad, and then here are some things that happened over there. And then the camera shifts over to the south, and in the so-and-so year of this northern king, so-and-so of the south became king, and he did this and this, and some of them were good, and some of them were bad, and here's what happened, and so on and so forth. And that goes all the way through from 1 Kings chapter 12 all the way through 2 Kings chapter 17. The only reason the ping-ponging stops is because chapter 17 is when the ten lost tribes get lost. The Assyrians invade and destroy and defeat the northern kingdom, and that's the second great catastrophe and trauma of the book. Interspersed in these chapters, this middle section, are phenomenal things that 
are so much fun and so worthwhile, but we're not going to talk about them at all. And those are the Elijah and the Elisha narratives. There's a whole prophetic cycle of these two great prophets that have their own spin and their own style, and boy, oh boy, are they different from everything. They just don't belong to a servant. They belong to a much more in-depth sort of course, but they're terrific. You should read all of these things. And, and you know, at some point, we say, there will be some point where hopefully we'll be able to learn those in depth. After the northern kingdom is done, there is no more northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah remains for the duration of the book, and that is the third section of your outline. Speaking of which, you got sources in the back? Thank you. We're, we're, we're all good. Where we finally have the winding down of the kingdom. We have a righteous king, Hezekiah, or Hezekiah, followed by his terribly wicked son, Menasheh, the worst king ever. And at this point, there's a decree that God makes against Jerusalem and the temple, and then it's just pretty much winding it down until, until it happens. And the final climactic moment is the destruction of the temple at the very end of the book. So that's the book of Kings in a bird's eye view. It starts from King Solomon, who is the temple builder. And he builds the temple in his tenure. And then he goes all the way down until finally that temple is destroyed. And pretty much we are in a terrible, terrible place. So tonight, see if we can keep score here. Tonight is going to be the King Solomon piece of this puzzle. And then next week will be, well, I guess since I only have one other week, everything else. But, but that's okay. We can do this and, and try to figure out some of the global themes of global themes of the book of Kings. I've mentioned this in the book of Samuel, but I'm required to mention it here also, of course. There's no such thing as one kings and two kings. That's a bunch of fiction. There's no such thing as that. There's one book of kings, just like there's one book of Samuel. And for that matter, there's one book of Chronicles. That's what tradition has always said. That's what it always has been. So you might ask, well, if you open up your printed Bibles and every Tanakh, there's a one Samuel and a two Samuel and a one kings and a two kings and a one Chronicles and a two Chronicles. That's actually pretty old these divisions. It goes back to the good old days where we did not have books. We had scrolls. And some scrolls can be pretty, you know, they have a maximum capacity, and at some point they just don't fit anymore. And so what they did already in the Second Temple period is they divided it up into subsections just to, so that each piece can fit, fit in a scroll. So that's all it is. There's no religious significance to this one Samuel, two Samuel, and in fact it can be distracting. Because we have to learn the Book of Kings as one collective unit. It was created as a literary unit, and we have to understand it as such. If we understand one kings in its own right, and two kings in its own right, well, that's, that's just wrong. There's no such thing as that. This semester is kind of fun. It's my 41st semester teaching at Yeshiva University. I just celebrated my 20th anniversary of teaching my first class. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This past Monday. And this semester, I'm actually teaching a course called One Samuel. I didn't even know this course existed, but I found out from the assistant dean I wanted to teach the book of Samuel, because that's a real book. And he asked me if I want to teach Samuel or one Samuel. I said, I'm allowed to teach one Samuel? That's great, and I'll tell you why it's great, because that means next semester I could teach two Samuel, and I get double the amount of time to teach this very impressive book. I'm thrilled. So I come in two days ago to my students for the first day of Shior, and I say, this is the first time in 41 semesters, I've taught many courses, that I'm teaching a course in a book that does not exist. Because there's no such thing as 1 Samuel. And yet, here we are being able to teach it. This is fantastic, and I explained why. So the same thing is true with Kings. Kings is the same boat in terms of there's no such thing as 1 Kings or, or 2 Kings. So tonight it's all about King Solomon. He's our star, so let's go for it. King Solomon was very wise. And King Solomon is more than just very wise. King Solomon did something very impressive. There are 11 chapters, the way that we divide the chapters of King Solomon, and it outlines very neatly. 
I'll tell you how it goes. First two chapters are terrible turmoil before Solomon officially becomes the, the undisputed king. What happens is he's one of King David's sons, and we all know that one of David's sons has to succeed David, but it is not at all clear which son is supposed to do it, because evidently David never made any announcement. So David's oldest living son as of this moment in the story is a man named Adoniyahu. And Adoniyahu says, hey, I want to be king. So he rallies some troops together, he gets chariots, he gets a whole parade, they say, long live the king. And they get very important officials to join this party. Just not, they don't invite Solomon and other people who they know will sort of oppose this. So thanks to some orchestration from Bathsheba, David's wife, and also King Solomon's mother, as well as Natan the prophet, David concedes that Solomon should be the king. And once he's announced, that's it. Adoniyahu's story is over. But now Solomon is king. King David dies. And now Solomon is officially king. He's been appointed by his father. It's all legit. But there are still those people who were part of Adoniyahu's team out there. So the rest of chapter 2 is King Solomon finding ways to have those people killed. And so they're dead. And by the end of the chapter, well, the chapter in source number 1 over here sets it all out. Again, if you do not have sources, I can help, or somebody else can help, but but I just need to know. But other other than that, source 1. And Solomon sat upon the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. That's what happens right after David dies, but then the whole rest of the chapter demonstrates No, it's not. It's not firmly established at all. He has to bump off this opposition in order to make it work. But by the end of that chapter, once he does kill off the powerful foes that he had out there, the king gave orders to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down, and so he died. Thus the kingdom was secured in Solomon's hands. Okay, now it really is secure. Now there's no more dispute. Adoniyahu is dead. There are no other brother, brothers who are rivaling Solomon for the throne. He's been legitimately appointed. The generals are in favor of him. The prophets are in favor of him. He has a very good team behind him. Solomon is now going to be king. And by the way, this is the first real dynasty of Israel. From the Department of Neat Statistics, by the way, in the Book of Kings, the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom each have 19 kings. Kind of cool. So if you like that number, it's really cool. The northern kingdom lasted only 240 or so years, whereas the Davidic dynasty lasted over 400 years. The northern kingdom has seven different dynasties. There's a lot of coups and and turmoil and struggles over there. In the southern kingdom, there is one dynasty the whole time. It's all King David's dynasty. There's never a dispute over the Davidic rule. Sometimes there are disputes within the Davidic rule, who should be ruling, But it's always a Davidic person. There's nobody from the outside who ever is going to threaten the Davidic throne. It's fascinating. And I think I might have even mentioned this last time, but it was forever ago, right? The Davidic dynasty is the second longest lasting dynasty in the history of the ancient Near East. There was one Assyrian dynasty that outlasted them, and the Assyrians were the great superpower of that era. It's amazing that some, I mean, I like Israel very much. I really do. I'm sure you do too. But in terms of world history, it's a tiny backwater state in the middle of nowhere in between great powers. It's absolutely astonishing that the Davidic dynasty lasted so long. It lasted over 400 years. It's really a miracle of history. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And it really worked out very nicely. So Solomon is the one who did it. So that's chapters 1 and 2. After chapters 1 and 2, you then have chapters 3 through 10. 3 through 10 describe King Solomon in such glowing terms that I can actually say this with a straight face and mean it and be right all at the same time. King Solomon is is described as the messianic king. 
in chapters 3 through 10. It is a reign of perfection. He is a prophet. He builds the temple. God's presence occupies the temple. The nation is united and all religious. There's peace in the region. All the nations of the world are flocking to Jerusalem to see the temple and to learn of Solomon's wisdom. It's exactly what later prophets describe as the messianic era. The only thing that's missing, because it's unnecessary, most prophets writing in the 8th century and on always talk about the ingathering of the exiles. That's a necessary component of our messianic view. But that component only became relevant when there were exiles to be ingathered. Right? In other words, in King Solomon's time, nobody was exiled yet. Everybody actually just lived in Israel. Everything was right. Starting the 8th century BCE, when what we call the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them prophesy the redemption of the, of the ingathering of the exiles. That's because the ten lost tribes were lost. So now they started predicting, oh, these people will come back. And once the southern kingdom was exiled, they predicted that the southern kingdom would come back too. So King Solomon is modeled, well, it goes both ways. Either he became the prototype that later prophets used for, this is what the messianic king will be. Or the author of the book of Kings, when he was writing about Solomon, made sure that Solomon sounded like a messianic king. It depends which came first. And I don't deal with chickens and eggs. So that's chapters 3 through 10, in a nutshell. The nation was the... You and I, when we pray for Mashiach, all we really want is another King Solomon-type reign. Temple standing, God's presence there, ingathering of the exiles, all the Jews united and religious, peace in the world, all of those good things that our prophets prophesy, it's all based on a, a real living model of the Solomonic era. And then comes chapter 11, no puns intended, right? But chapter 11... King Solomon finds out what happens when you marry 1,000 women, many of whom happen to be pagan. It's a bad idea. The Torah prohibits excessive wives for kings, and Halakha determines that the number of excessive is anything over the number 18. So Solomon is 982 over the halakhic limit, which is, which is a disaster. I will tell you, by the way, even though that's, that's terrible, right? But... The Talmud, talk, you want to hear a really cool, sensitive comment of the Talmud that is not part of the biblical narrative at all, and it's not relevant to the biblical narrative, but you show, it shows the humanity of our sages. They imagine, none of this is in the text, because none of this is relevant to the text, but what, what they talk about is they imagine that every single evening, every single one of those thousand women would cook up a good dinner and make themselves up, hoping that tonight would be their night, even though there was a one in a thousand chance that that would be their night. And I think it's a very human comment, actually, just a picture, what's it like to be in this gigantic harem of a very powerful king? I think it's an incredibly humane and human comment for a situation that's obviously a mistake. The problem isn't just with the sheer number of women. The, The problem is that most of them are pagans. The reason why Solomon married so many pagan women, by the way, is because he was making alliances. That's how you made political alliances. He married the daughters of Israelite noblemen, And that solidified the kingdom. And he married every single princess he can get his hands on. The logic is, if you marry the princess, then that king is not going to attack you because he doesn't want to mess with his own daughter. Right? It was an excellent way of building political alliances. When Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, this is the only time in Israel's history that any of our kings married the princess of a superpower nation. King David had married princesses of Geshur. But what's Geshur? It's, It's a little backwater. It's even smaller than Israel. It's nothing. So he didn't marry any big-time princesses. Solomon is the only one who married a big-time princess. And in fact, in all the Egyptian records we have now from our our archaeology friends, 
There's no record of any Egyptian princess ever marrying any non-Egyptian. So the idea that here's King Solomon, one of our, one of our, here, he made it from a political point of view, from a religious point of view, a, a disaster. Because after all, you marry all these pagan women who remain pagan. What happens here is, at some point, well, you know, they kind of miss their deities and their culture and their religious system, and they start building shrines, and Solomon builds them for them. And the way the text sets it all out, Solomon himself was swayed at the end of his life and turned to idolatry, and poof, there goes the messianic era like that. Not only does Solomon turn to idolatry and allow it to proliferate, but he's unpenitent about it. It's amazing. King David, at least, for the flaws that he did with Bathsheba that we talked about last time, which still feels like really forever ago, but just the very last session we had together back in December. So David repented big time. He made a terrible mistake, a series of mistakes actually, but then he repented. Solomon is completely and totally unpenitent, and therefore God sends a decree that in his son's lifetime, the kingdom will split. And that's how the Solomonic era ends. There are 11 chapters, two of instability, three through 10, that makes a total of eight chapters, are fabulous messianic wonder. And then chapter 11, where just he, he explodes himself and then it's over. Yes, yeah, Sue? When did um, the definition of being a Jew come as a, a matriarchal descent? Not fully clear. Certainly it's ancient, but the question is how far back does it go? Clearly, these, there must have been progeny. Yeah, I'm actually bummed. I always picture that if Solomon could just have 10 children with each one of them, you get a city, right? That would have been really awesome. But, but we don't know anything about too many of the kids, and the one that we know about, Rechavam, is a disaster. Uh, presumably there was progeny, but in, in that era, for sure, however it worked, those children would have been legitimate Israelites. That, that's for sure. How, how the system exactly worked is unclear. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is significant or not, but it's, it's you know, wise it's kind of all it's kind of all it's kind of all lumped together I mean the wives have much more of a stake in the marriage but but simultaneously I, I don't think that the narrative is so careful to distinguish I, mean, I know it says that he has wives and concubines I don't think that it was the wives and not the concubines yeah what made him so wise in other words he set up the kingdom in such a way with a pagan wife he set up his, his Yerusha, his, it was Rechavim, which, which was terrible. You're right, the other things. These were colossal errors. I mean, obviously, the, the famous story that, that does it all for everybody is the uh, One Wish and then the prostitute story. It's fantastic, that right? But, but not only that, he, more than just that, he was able to unify, first of all, anybody who could unify the Jewish people is pretty wise, <laughs> right? He did an excellent job at that. He unified the entire region. He actually did a lot of very good things. That being said, he also made a couple of very serious errors. I can't, I don't, can't, I can't comment on the Rechavam thing just because I don't know who the other candidates were. We just don't have enough information. With regard to the wives, it's a failure. And the way the Talmud, very insightful, the Talmud tries to understand how could it be that the wisest of all men made such a really terribly foolish mistake to just violate the Torah, marry these pagans, keep them around, and, and sway to idolatry. We understand, by the way, King David's sin more I'm not justifying it, but lust is a different thing from idolatry. How could Solomon have done this? So the way the Talmud understands it, which I think is brilliant as always, is that it was his wisdom that brought him down. The Torah says, oh, a king should not marry too many wives because they'll lead his heart astray. And Solomon's like, oh, that's for riffraff kings, but I'm the wisest of all men. I'll never fall for that. 
The Talmud understands that his, he became too confident in his wisdom. I believe that literarily in the narrative, that's what we would do if we went verse by verse, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. For one thing, his advisors are never mentioned during the 11 chapters of his narrative, nor are there any mention of any external prophets during those 11 chapters. Solomon is totally self-reliant as a wise, prophetic king, and he's all on his own. He makes all the decisions for himself. So when things are good, all right, go wisdom. When he's overconfident in that, that's where his downfall comes. I think the Talmud is onto something very important. And again, we'll get back to that hopefully a little bit tonight. And then comes chapter 3. The, the thesis of tonight, by the way, is, is it all, all has to do with porcupines. I don't remember how much I spoke about porcupines back in December, but I'll talk about them now. I'm very into porcupines, by the way. I should be more into them, frankly, but I don't have time to pursue this thing. But one thing that I at least picture about a porcupine is that if you try to make nice to a porcupine and you go one way, it's fine. It's just that if you go the other way, you get a lot of quills in your hand, and that would be a disaster. The David and Solomon narratives both work like porcupines. When you're reading forward, you're picturing, here's the messianic king, and then all of a sudden he just does this terrible thing at the end of his life, and boom, it explodes on him. But when you then know the whole narrative and you read backwards... Suddenly you start getting filled with quills. You realize, oh, this is an ingenious narrative that is building up the failure. And that you begin to realize that only once you know about the failure. Meaning, in principle, if you were to delete chapter 11, the chapter about the idolatry, you would say, here is an account of a perfect messianic king. But once you have chapter 11, you don't just think he's perfect anymore. You start looking back and you realize, oh... This stuff was happening from the very beginning. And we'll see that right off the bat with source number two. Source two, you have these three verses, or four verses that I have for you over here, and then I'll tell you the rest of chapter three, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Solomon allied himself by marriage with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is right after his kingdom became stable. He married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David to live there until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem. The people, however, continued to offer sacrifices at the open shrines because up to that time, no house had been built for the name of the Lord. And Solomon, though he loved the Lord and followed the practices of his father David, also sacrificed and offered at the shrines. Okay, so just reading these three verses in a total vacuum. How does the narrative evaluate Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a neutral thing? Correct. It, it seems at, at worst it's neutral. Maybe it's even positive. Wow, you know, like there's almost this pride of, wow, we married Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter. Nobody continued to sacrifice. Right? And then when it says, the people, however, continue to offer sacrifices, and when it says in verse 3, and Solomon, though he loved the Lord, also sacrificed and offered. How would you say the evaluation is over there? The needle is starting to tip. He's slipping off that perfect pedestal. He's making up his own rules. In other words, he loves the Lord, but he also is sacrificing. Meaning he's doing something wrong, right? Okay, yeah. Um, these are sacrifices to God, not to... That is correct. I, 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 there was a period when this was allowed and then not allowed. Yes. Uh, at what point was it not allowed before the Beit HaMikdash was built? Correct. So... So the issue is that they certainly were allowed now, at this point in the narrative, because this is pre, just to give you a map of the book, we're in chapter 3, and chapter 6 is when he builds the temple. Chapter 6, 7, 8. So once the temple is built, suddenly these shrines become illegal. 
At this moment onward, according to the Torah, Israelites are not allowed to bring animal sacrifice anywhere but in the temple proper. But until then, it was perfectly permissible. What were the practices of David? What do you mean? Oh, righteous practices. The idea is that David was righteous. And though Solomon was righteous, he still did this. At least that's correct. Meaning that this is a negative commentary about it. What's weird, I'll tell you what's weird. I thought it was bad to marry an Egyptian princess. But the narrative doesn't seem to fuss about that one bit. There's a double whammy, by the way. One is that he's marrying a pagan woman. Pharaoh. Right? Even worse, right? And, and... The Torah has a special prohibition against marrying Egyptians. But let me rewind a little bit. What was so great about killing all the Arabs? In the, in the first uh, source that you said. In other words, in order to get where he got, he actually, on a kind of Judaic religious level, that's also kind of a taboo type of a thing. I mean, on a political level, clearly you do whatever you can to secure your, your reign. That's what it was. So of an ethical, religious ethical level, right. you see lots of things. For sure. It's a complicated story. What I will say is that King David, on his deathbed, told Solomon to do the same thing. Not about his brother, because he was not going to order him to kill his own brother. But he did say, bump off the opposition, because they're a threat. In other words, David realized that there's a problem here. And again, I think you're right, that there's still the moral... Whenever there are kings in politics and killing, there's always, okay, but somebody's now dead, and we have to deal with that ethical issue as well. From a political standpoint, these were certainly the right decisions, with the way the story is told. Meaning they're not viewing King Solomon as a murderer, they're viewing him as eliminating severe threats to his own life and to the throne. Yeah, Sandra? But from a literary standpoint, since... And, and in general, the kingship politics intrigue that comes with it, I think Elisa's point is correct. But um, that there's still there's the moral plane that comes with it. I think that you're right that there's some lurking something, and obviously it's going to blow up on him. Dave, one more thing. Well, the history is rife with fratricide. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at Ottoman Turkey, where the Sultan really did have a thousand wives or whatever, um, when he died, there, there was fratricide in the hundred. You know, whoever. too much into politics, A, because I never do, and, and, and B, because, of course, you're right. There's definitely the political layer, which everybody understands, and there's also definitely the moral layer. Let's do a few, let's do a little more material, and then we'll see how this all unfolds. Our commentaries are bothered, though, just on the literary reading of these three verses. 
Because what it should have said is, though Solomon was righteous and followed in David's ways, however, he married Pharaoh's daughter. I'm waiting for something like that. Uh And they all served God on the Bamot because of what Abe said, because it was perfectly permissible to do that. What do you mean, however? This is a perfectly stereotypical formula. You'll find this throughout the book of Kings. Once the temple is built, so-and-so king was righteous, but he allowed the people to continue worshiping on these altars. Okay, that's appropriate, because they were prohibited at that point. But in Solomon's moment, right now, what he and the people are doing is absolutely fine, and therefore the howevers and the buts are not in the right place. And so our commentators give their answers. I'm going to give my porcupine answer. There's, there's two ways of reading this story. There's the forwards way and there's the backwards way. There's the real-time King Solomon, meaning right now King Solomon is at the top of the world. He's eliminated his political rivals. He has a secure throne. The people have accepted him. Prophecy has accepted him. It's all looking good. And he's about to become a messianic figure. All the good, all the good things, right? But this narrative wasn't written by King Solomon. Right? The prophetic book of Kings was written at the very end of the period, hundreds of years after Solomon. Traditionally by the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet of the destruction, meaning the one who was around at the time of the destruction of the temple, 400 years later. Meaning when he's compiling the book of Kings, he knows the end of the story. And he doesn't just know the end of the Solomon story. He knows the end of the story story. He knows what happens centuries later and everything. He knows all the things that Solomon caused, for good and for bad. So when he's rigging this narrative the way that he's doing it, he's able to set us up by saying, when we're reading this in real time, wow, Solomon married an Egyptian princess. He's really, he's got power. This is a prestigious thing for our country. But when in the end, she and 999 cohorts sway Solomon to idolatry, then we're like, oh my goodness, that error was at the beginning of his reign. If you didn't know chapter 11, okay, It's weird, but nothing bad happened. He turns into a messianic king. But look at source number three from chapter 11. This is the downfall of Solomon here. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Phoenician, and Hittite women. Such Solomon clung to and loved. He had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. In his old age... His wives turned away Solomon's heart after other gods, and he was not as wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. He turned to idolatry, and he allowed it to proliferate. Besides how horrible that is in its own right, it's a bigger bummer, because the prophet Samuel is the one who purged Israel of its idolatry, meaning for the whole duration of the tenure of Samuel, Saul, David, and most of Solomon, idolatry was not our problem. The longest idol-free period we had in the whole Bible. And of all people to bring it back, it's Solomon himself, the wisest of all men. And that suddenly raises Isaac's question, right? Of, oh, yeah, yeah, right? So how does the narrative rig? Okay, Sherry, what do you... So basically, what I see is, and actually, some of my books, you saw this, I You know what happens? We see it all the time, even currently throughout history that an individual, usually a man, but not necessarily, has gotten, has been too powerful, been too successful. And you know what? The persona takes over from the person. Sure. He begins to believe in his own image. 
And that is part of what creates... I think that you're right. No, I think that you're right. So, but on top of the overconfidence, the narr- look at this narrative. Look at sources two and three together here. Could have made you a chart. But let's do the chart together. On the top, it says, Solomon allied himself by marriage with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David to live there. We're back in source two. Until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord. The people, however, continued to offer sacrifices at the open shrines because up to that time, no house had been built for the name of the Lord. And Solomon, though he loved the Lord and followed the practices of his father David, also sacrificed and offered at the shrines. The king went to Kivaon to sacrifice there, for that was the largest shrine. On that altar, Solomon presented 1,000 burnt offerings. Okay. Top of his game, chapter 3, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. Chapter 11, Pharaoh's daughter and all of her buddies bring Solomon down. How many sacrifices did Solomon bring when he was at the top of his game in Givon? A thousand. And how many wives does he have if you pull out your calculators? A thousand wives, right? In the top, they're bringing offerings on the shrines, but of course, as Abe said, to God. Nobody's worshiping idols over there. Well, here we have some shrines proliferating all over the place, and this time they are idolatrous shrines. Who does Solomon love in source number two? Although he loved God. He loves God. And who does he love down at the bottom in chapter 11? Notice how these two paragraphs are obviously talking to each other. You have this paragraph in chapter 3 at the beginning of his reign, where Solomon is at the top of his game. And then you have chapter 11 where everything goes kaput. But the way our prophetic author has organized everything, the whole point is, see all that stuff in chapter 3, it's all foreshadowing chapter 11. But wait, there's more. We can say like this, when Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, there's a really good thing and a really bad thing about that. The good thing is the political side, right? It all goes back to Lisa's side on the killings, but this has to do with the marriage side. On the political side, this was the biggest coup ever. For us to marry into a superpower nation, it's amazing. It really shows the power and prestige and stability of King Solomon. From a religious point of view, this is a catastrophe. Married to a pagan woman who's going to bring him down. He's married to an Egyptian, so it's a double whammy. There's nothing good about it. So since our author knows that both of these things are true, what does he do? In chapter 3, when he's talking about Solomon's stability and power and how he unified everybody, he just focuses on the positive. That's why there's no criticism over there. When you get to chapter 11, kablooey. But you realize that kablooey was happening from the very very beginning. Okay, once you have this porcupine thing going for us, we can start appreciating everything else about the narrative. God came to King Solomon in chapter 3 in a dream, where he told him, I'll give you one wish. And we all know Solomon here wished for wisdom. And God said, wow, that was really impressive. Okay, I was expecting wealth or long life or all the normal stuff that people wish for when they get one wish. But since you asked for wisdom, which is such a brilliantly good answer, well then, I'm going to give you all the other stuff too. And that's what God says in source 4. God said to him, Because you asked for this, you did not ask for long life, you did not ask for riches, you did not ask for the life of your enemies, but you asked for discernment in dispensing justice. I now do as you have spoken. I grant you a wise and discerning mind. There has never been anyone like you before, nor will anyone like you arise again. And I also grant you what you did not ask for, both riches and glory all your life, the like of which no king has ever had. So wow, Solomon did very well with this. It shows he had a lot of wisdom pre-dream. 
but then he just comes out way on top of it as a result, poetry. So the point is, what are we expecting if we're Bible readers? What's, what's King Solomon's reign going to look like? What are we going to expect if we've never read it before? Peace, perfection. We're going to have to see some specimens of his wisdom. What else are we going to see? Wealth and glory. Whatever God is saying here, you've got to believe our prophetic narrator is not going to let that one go. If King Solomon's thing turns out to be incredibly not glorious and poor, well, that's not going to fly. It's very obvious. This is the way that biblical narrative works. In other words, here's God blessing Solomon. And we know full well that these things are going to have to be fulfilled. And lo and behold... We will not be disappointed. First comes the wise part. That's the two prostitutes who are fighting over the baby, which we saw the term Solomonic wisdom that comes, that comes from that story. It's a fantastic story. also deserves its own attention. I'm sure at some point I will, I will talk about it here in another context, but not in a survey. But we also have this incredible power and glory. You may recall how depressed I was when we were doing the book of Judges. I'm still depressed just thinking about it now in passing. But anytime I mention the book of Judges, there's lots to be depressed about. The Israelites are turning to idolatry. They never get their act together. But one of the things that really bugs me is that they have no army. They're a totally defenseless bunch of farmers. And all these invaders around know that. So they just show up with their garrisons, build, you know, steal grain, plunder, do whatever they need to do. And the Israelites are helpless. Finally, God sets up some savior and they get a bunch of pitchfork-wielding, brave, very brave men to go out there and beat off the enemy. And then we win. And then it starts all over again. Well, what we needed was chariots. Because all the other guys had them. And chariots were the great weapon of that era. And we have none. In fact, a couple of times in earlier battles when we captured some, Joshua captured some chariots. But they didn't know what to do with them, so they disabled the horses and burned the wooden chariots, and that was it. At least that way the enemies won't get them back. And David was still doing that. King David, when he defeated armies with chariots, they disabled the chariots and the horses to make sure they could never fall into enemy hands again. They didn't say, hey, let's keep this stuff and learn how to use it. Right? Solomon, you realize it's more than just this was a good idea, that Solomon decided to build a chariot system. It's incredibly expensive. You need stables. You need the people who take care of the horses, the trainers. You have to feed the horses. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's infrastructure. But Solomon's kingdom was wealthy, and with the wealth came the wisdom to get an army, and a very good army at that. And once Solomon had a good army, you know what? There was peace in the region, because it was a deterring force. All of a sudden, all these enemies around Israel realized, hey, we can't just beat up on them like we've been doing for centuries. Solomon is too strong. Solomon didn't use it to invade anybody. He just said, mess with us, and and we got chariots. And that was it. People left him alone. There was peace in the region. Right? Yeah, Megan? I I was just thinking in terms of this dream when he asked for wisdom, that is more Davidic. It's like his father. It's like uh, when he's awake, he's uh, politically savvy, and maybe young and interested in women and alliances and stuff like that. But when he's asleep, he's like um, hearing a genealogical memory. That's <laughs> just a literary device. Can't tell you no. And uh, so, so that all being said, here are a couple of verses in sources five and six that praise the wealth and the military power of Solomon's reign. Source 5, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariotry and 12,000 horsemen. It's just praise. There's lavish praise throughout the entire Solomon narrative about his great wisdom. And the fact that he was, there's even in chapter 5, he was even wiser than these other guys who evidently everybody knew about. You know, these other famed wise men. Well, Solomon was even wiser than they were. I love that. It's like the sense of, wow, we really made it. Our man made it. God's divine promise of, 
of wisdom came through, the glory came through, and in source 6, you get it all. King Solomon excelled all the kings on earth in wealth and in wisdom. All the world came to pay homage to Solomon and to listen to the wisdom with which God had endowed him. And each one would bring his tribute, silver and gold objects, robes, weapons and spices, horses and mules, and amount due each year. Solomon assembled chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot towns that with, and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the Shephelah. Solomon's horses were procured from Mitzrayim and Q. The king's dealers would buy them from Q at a fixed price. A chariot imported from Mitzrayim cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. These, in turn, were exported by them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. Okay, what are all of these verses that I'm reading to you? These are a fulfillment of God's promise of wealth and glory. So that's it. Chapters 3 through 10, Solomon wished for the right thing, great wisdom, and he got it. And so the narratives are bombarding him with Solomon was the wisest of them all, and the wealthiest of them all, and the most powerful of them all. It's all part of this divine blessing. The very next verse after what I just read you in Source 6 is chapter 11. Right after the great... Wealth, wisdom, power, fame, all of that good stuff comes. At, uh, source 3. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, da, 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 and in comes the idolatry. So if you're reading forward, you have achieved stability, messianic era, blessings galore, the best king ever, all the peace in the region, all the good, all the good stuff. And then chapter 11, kabloom. Idolatry, the wives led his heart astray. But let's see now. King Solomon had a lot of wealth, and he had a lot of horses, and he had a lot of wives. Sound familiar? Those are the, in juxtaposition, those are the three things that are mentioned here. Sound familiar? He had a lot of wealth, a lot of horses, a lot of wives. Those are the three things that the Torah says a king is not allowed to have too much of. And, and Samuel warned B'nai Israel at the yeah, Solomon's soul is saying, I told you so, guys, right? Really? So Samuel is like turning over in his grave. Anytime any king sins, you better believe he's turning over in his grave. Source 7. Here's from the Torah, the laws of the kings. Moreover, he shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since the Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. You're not allowed to have too many horses or else you'll go back to Egypt. And here's Solomon married to Egypt and importing horses from there. Hmm. Right? And he shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray. Indeed, exactly what happened. Nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Well, silver is as common as stones. So what is it? Is it a blessing or is he violating the Torah? Right? Isn't that really neat? I think it's incredibly neat. Well, when you're reading forward... both. Right. When you're, it depends which way you read. It's the porcupine thing. If you're reading forward, you're making nice to that little fella... It's very pleasant. It's all part of the divine blessing of Solomon's wish. The wealth and the horses, there's nothing bad about that whatsoever. It's part of the Solomonic glory that God promised. This is the ideal age. But once the wives lead Solomon's heart astray, you can't miss wealth, horses, too many wives. Bing! Solomon is in total violation of the Torah, and that's what brought him down. When you, once the Solomon's heart goes, heart goes astray... When you read backward, you see that everything is falling apart before us. It's part of the problem. 
That's the forward and the backward. Let me just let me just say one other thing, and then we'll we'll pick it up on that. So Barbanel, when he's interpreting the text, he reads it forwards. He just says these are parts of the divine blessing, and of course he's right. But if you look at source eight, here's a midrash that's reading the text backwards. Rav said in the name of Samuel, three acts connected with Solomon, the attribute of justice allowed to succeed for a time, but in the end confounded and confused. It is written, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Yet he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. It is written, he shall not multiply horses to himself. Yet Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. It is written, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Yet the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. Now, when you're reading chapter 10 going forward, these aren't bad things. It's good that he had a lot of money. It's good that he had a lot of horses. This is part of the blessing. It's what God told him what happened. But once you know the failure, this Midrash is saying, hmm, Wealth, horses, wives. That's it. Ding, 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 ding. Solomon is going down. When you read backwards, you realize, oh, the the prophetic narrator really did a good job here. He allowed us to see blessing, 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 messianic era. But once you see the failure, you realize, oh, he married Pharaoh's daughter at the very beginning of his reign, and look what it blew up on him. He had all this wealth and horses, but look, that's part of the problem now. That's what happens when you read backwards, Vivian. Vivian, did you have your hand Well, he asked Hashem to be wise, and what he was doing wasn't wise. He never asked for the wealth and the horses. He asked Hashem for wiseness. Right. So how come he wasn't wise? And he got all the things he didn't ask for. So, well, God blessed him with the wealth and the horses. That was a good thing. Yes, but, but if also he right. would have known that, that he shouldn't have. Your point is exactly correct. So again, the Talmud, going back to what our conversation with Isaac a little while ago, the Talmud understands that Solomon outwised himself. Mm-hmm. Now, he became so overconfident in his wisdom that he lost sight of the dangers of these things, right? And that's what helped to bring him down. But didn't they all have wives at that time? Wives, and was it, unusual it wasn't unusual to have a harem. The question is, how big does that harem get? Right? In other words, halakha, it's not in the Torah. We don't know what the... When it says the king is not allowed to have too many wives, there's no number there, so I don't know what it is. Right? The Talmud derives from David's tenure that David had 18 wives. That's not in the text either. He had six wives in the text, but the Talmud somehow makes that 18. So that all being said, they decide that's the top. 19 and you're violating it. In other words, kings were supposed to have multiple wives for the simple reason of having... Both for political alliances, but also to ensure succession. Right? You wanted to make sure that your dynasty lived on, well, have more kids. That's a likely thing to be able to do. So Solomon, whatever the real upper limit is, a thousand we can safely surmise is beyond whatever the Torah permitted a king to have. And not only was it a lot of women again, but it was a lot of them were pagan women. And that led to the disaster of this period. Okay, so one other, yeah, one other comment. And then I want to... well, you know, well, okay, given what was said in the Torah about not having wealth, etc., but then you have a conflict for that God says, here is the wealth. Well, God comes to me and says, well, you know, I know the Torah, it's all being wise, I know the Torah says I shouldn't be wealthy. But God says, I'm going to make you wealthy. What am I going to say? No. You know, he's, he's stuck with this. So. Yeah, but, but I, I would say even more than that. It's a good thing as long as the king is righteous. And I think that's the moral of most stories, biblically, that that humans have foibles and 
No. Maybe at times they achieve, perfe not perfection, but they achieve greatness, but then they often fall. I mean, I think that's the realistic version of humanity. Incredibly I think that so. We've been sort of inculcated, especially in our younger years, of this idealization of our, you know, our forefathers, of our, you know, our historical, you know, role models. Right. And I think the reason why they're historical role models is because they're relatable. Like we've seen all this. Sure, sure, sure. This is, this is very much, you're 100% right. Look, Tanakh certainly doesn't whitewash, to put it mildly. I mean, I think I mentioned this as the brutal irony of it all. The three greatest sins any Israelite can, or any Jew today can commit are idolatry, murder, and adultery. And here you have King David and Solomon, the founders of our dynasty, composers of biblical books, and by most standards, very righteous. Between the two of them, they committed those three sins. Right? David is guilty of adultery and murder, and... And Solomon is guilty of idolatry. So your point is, you know, to me, there's no more honest text in the history of world literature than texts that are willing to vilify not just any old king, but specifically ones that we turn to by and large as heroes. And, and, and your point is exactly correct. Again, the way that the Talmud understands Solomon, that Solomon's problem was he didn't surround himself with advisors or prophets to keep him in check. He was all of those things to himself. He was the prophet. He was the wise man. And so you need a council. You need other people who can say, Solomon, you're over the line here. Better watch out for what Vivian was saying, basically, right? Yeah, that's exactly. But what Vivian said is correct. Solomon should have realized, given the excesses that were going on, that could still be managed as long as they're really being careful about it. But once he's running the whole thing, the power eventually got the better of him. And this brings us to, by the way, there's just a cool thing, sneak preview to not this coming May, but a year from May. All right, when we get to the book of Chronicles, the very last talk of this entire series, I don't know if it's exactly May, but it's around May, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the timing of all that next year. But for our purposes now, the book of Chronicles, when it retells the Solomon narrative, simply leaves out this idolatry chapter, what we have as chapter 11. It's not there. And that's where you see all of the wisdom and the wealth and the horses and all that kind of stuff is pure blessing. There's nothing bad about having all of that as long as Solomon doesn't sin. But once he sins, then you can't miss. Uh-oh, too much wealth, too many horses, too many wives, it all exploded on him. Once you have the sin here in chapter 11, that's what, that's what makes it all... Right. What's the agenda of the person telling us the story? That's exactly right. And, and are different people telling us this story? Right. Well, clearly those two books have a very different agenda of what they're trying to get across, Asandra. So, um, this week's Parsha it has the Ten Commandments in it. And so, everything, it's just epiphany right now. So everything we're reading about, if we look at the Ten Commandments, um, that's what they were prohibiting against. The first being, I'm God. Nobody else. Eh. Right. Okay? No other gods before you. Eh. Okay? Don't, um, you shall not murder, you shall not... And I think the last one is, and don't desire all of that stuff. Right. And this is, I mean, it's a... Textbook. He's like a textbook, textbook. of the anti-Ten Commandments. Right. So it's wild. I mean, that was the stuff that we were supposed to guard ourselves against. I mean, to the point where it's, it's so hard to do it. And the wisest of the wise, I'm with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you here. And it's just so hard to put our brains around this. It is. 
It's it so is. Possible. I think it's possible because I, I think what Elisa said is fundamentally correct. In other words, the warning of all of these narratives is that even the wisest of all men can fail if he's being overconfident in his wisdom and not not taking the proper checks and balances. He Everybody, he, 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 he sure did. So. Since Jeremiah is writing this book from a retrospective, he's able to do something fabulous with the narrative that we've been talking about right now. What was King Solomon in the global book of kings? Solomon was two things. He was the messianic king who built the temple, this ideal person to whom, or after whom, all later prophets will model their messianic visions. That's all there when you read forward. When you read backward... Solomon also was the one who sowed the seeds for the temple's destruction. By bringing idolatry back, by bringing idolatry back into the kingdom, from this, took a perfected messianic era, and he is the one who sowed the seeds for the temple's destruction. We never recovered from his reintroduction of idolatry. It started with the splitting of the monarchy, which is already a disaster. Bless you. Ultimately, that led to the unraveling of everything. So the Talmud captures this in two different, in two different very colorful pa- passages that we have here in sources 9 and 10. The first one is a, a verse from the book of Jeremiah, who Jeremiah is the author traditionally of the book of Kings as well. One verse says in source 9, For the Lord has chosen Zion. There are many verses that sound like that. This is one in Psalms. But another verse says, For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day they built it, even unto this day. Here's Jeremiah speaking at the very end of the period, minutes before the destruction of the temple in chapter 32, saying, God has always been angry at Jerusalem. Now you could argue, and this is probably a good argument, by the way, Jeremiah is using what's called severe rhetorical exaggeration. Right? When you're looking at the temple that's about to be destroyed and Jerusalem that's about to fall, a prophet can look back and say, God was always angry at you. Even though we all know, well, wait a minute, was God really angry at Israel all of this time? I don't think so. David and Solomon, there were some good things over there. There were some righteous kings along the way. Right? We would say that this is rhetorical exaggeration, but the Talmud takes it more literally and says, the former applied to the time before Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, while the latter applied to the time after Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. I think this Talmudic passage is so spot on with what we were talking about tonight. What it's saying is, yes, God has chosen Zion. It's the eternal capital of Israel. This is the messianic moment. That's what it's like before Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. But once Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, that sowed the seeds for the destruction. That's what this passage is saying. It's more than just, it was a terrible mistake, and that power corrupts, and that too much overconfidence in his wisdom, and that it was a personal failure. Yes, it was all of those things. But the prophet writing the book of Kings knows that it's more than that. It's a national disaster. This is something that impacted on the country, and it never stopped impacting, and it led to the destruction. A more colorful way of saying that is in source number 10. Rabbi Judah said in Samuel's name, when Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, Gabriel, who's one of the angels, descended and planted a reed in the sea. That was a moment when one of the angels came and took a little stalk and he shoved it into the sea and gathered a bank around it on which the great city of Rome was built. So what is this passage saying? This is a Talmudic way of thinking about the same thing. King Solomon also caused the destruction of the second temple because the Romans destroyed it. Right now, obviously, that's not shot anymore. That's just what the sages do. The sages very often link biblical passages and predictions to the second temple period, because that's when they lived. 
So they're simply applying what we're talking about, meaning the book of Kings isn't talking about any second temple. It's all about the first one. And Solomon is the one who built it and was the fabulous messianic figure behind it, but also was the one who sowed the seeds for its destruction. This passage simply extends that in saying Solomon is the one who sowed the seeds for the destruction of the second temple. So what this whole shiur has been about is reading, as, as I like to tell you, it's good to know the Bible backwards and forwards, right? Not in the sense that, I mean, it's good to know it well, which is how the expression is normally used, but I like it in terms of actually really, really, really thinking about it backwards and forwards, where you have to read it forwards in real time and picture. Solomon was a real person who lived in a real time, and here are the narratives about him and how the prophets want to teach you know, you know, help teach us things from Solomon's reign. But simultaneously, when you read backwards, you realize that the prophets know the end of the story. Centuries later, they're able to cast the earlier narratives in such a way that you realize, oh, this was all leading to something. In this case, unfortunately, to the destruction of the first temple. In, in, in better learning news, it's a, it's a bleak point to end on, so I'll just point out that the Solomon narratives go ahead and set the tone for the rest of the book of Kings. And so we're going to see next time how this narrative that you and I have been dealing with, how it filters through to the rest of the book of Kings, which includes some very negative stuff, because after all, if the destruction of the temple is the pinnacle of the book, we can't expect too much happy ending. The whole point is that it's a very horrible ending. But simultaneously, there are some very important points that come out along the way. So a couple of final points here. It struck me about why should be there at all about Solomon? What sort of happened to it? I mean, and I'll give you an analogy to it. That's uh, a, we have to do the, we have to do the yeah, very quick. shorter form. Basically, yeah. it's that if the greatest, one of the greatest men we've ever known in our history, this happens to him, well, you know, the opposite of Paul the Homer, yeah. well, then this can happen to anyone. Because right. if it happened to him, you know it can happen to anyone else. That is certainly true. Way, right. A few years ago, I don't remember when, there was that tsunami that had uh, really washed up from the Indian Ocean, whenever it was. And there was uh, newspaper articles about a model who had gotten very, you know, injured and everything. She'd lost her fiancé. And somebody complained. Why are they writing about this? Why not about the common folk? I'll tell you why. There's a good reason. In the same way. Because if it can happen to her, who has all the money, the wealth, the glamour, whatever... Then you know what? It's going to happen to everybody else. You're not immune from it, no matter who you are as a human being. Fair enough. On that happy note, I want to thank everybody. It's so good to see everybody again. If you were not, if it's the first time I'm seeing you in this thing, I mean, I've seen some of you before, but not necessarily here. If you could just come over to me afterwards, just so I can get your name and email address, I can you know contact you for future classes, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.